people and yeah. how quickly yeah. and how easily <clears throat> you can change somebody's exactly. day. Yeah. Well, Sonia, I want to hear about your inspirations. We got like a minute left. Okay, well, there's Marion Patterson and Michael I Ivanitsky. These were uh, people who taught me how to use a camera and develop film at Foothill Community College in the mid-90s, because in mid-90s we were still using film. Um, there was uh, Beverly Elkins, my fourth grade teacher, who told us on the first day of school that she eats cold raw fish for breakfast and works out on a tire, so she's extra crabby and grouchy, so you better watch out. Um, <laughs> and who else did I say? I said I had a couple... Oh, and I think that um, people who work with children are often inspired by children, at least in the aggregate, if not any particular mm -hmm. one. Um, I remember uh, when I was a, a counselor at a summer camp, uh, we were on our way for uh, crackers and juice, um, and you know, coming back from visiting the animal pens, because this was on a farm, he comes, he comes like kind of trotting up ahead of the rest of the group and just takes my hand, looks up in the face like, I wish I had a parent who was like you. And it's like my heart Aww. melted and broke at the same time. <laughs> and you think like the, this, the old saying, a um, hundred years ago, a hundred years from now, the world might be better. The world can be a better place because I was important in the life of a child. Oh, that's, that's great. Beautiful. What a wonderful note to end on. Yes. Thank you for that, Sonia. And thank you everyone for tuning in. This has been The Gap. I'm Tammy with Althea and Sonia. Keeping it real, flipping the script. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you everyone so much. Bye. That All right, that brings us to 9 a.m. at KBOO Portland. It's still Friday. Stay tuned for the rest of the uh, AM radio zine, followed by an afternoon of music, an evening of news, and more music and weirdness overnight and through the weekend. and welcome to Arab Voices on Houston's community station, listener-sponsored, commercial-free KPFT 90.1 FM, with live streaming and online archive previous shows at both kpft.org and arabvoices.net. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. This show is syndicated and it airs on other radio stations in different states in the U.S. Today on Arab Voices, I will have three segments. First, February, as you know, is Black History Month, and today I will air Dr. Seneca Lofton's latest topical poem of the week episode, where he lifts up the youngest inaugural poet African-American, Amanda Gorman, who performed her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. And I will also air Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb poem. During the second segment, I will air spoken words on Yemen from Yemeni-American artist Aisa Maiti. 
He delivered the spoken words at the World Says No to War on Yemen global online rally held last week. During the third segment, I will air a special episode from Still Spying podcast titled Spying on Muslim and Arab Americans. It is a conversation with Abdin Jabara, a longtime civil rights attorney, past president of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, and former board member of the Center for Constitutional Rights. This month, February, is Black History Month. It is an annual observance originating in the United States, where it is also known as African American History Month. It has received official recognition from governments in the United States and Canada, as well as Ireland, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom. It began as a way of remembering important people and events in the history of the African diaspora. Dr. Seneca Lofton, who produces Topical Poem of the Week episodes, where he explores American issues that affect the African-American community, such as racism, oppression, gender, inequality, and poverty, through a unique blend of social commentary and poetry, began Black History Month with an episode where he lifts up the youngest inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman, who performed her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Let's listen in now to Dr. Seneca Lofton's topical poem of the week, Amanda Gorman Looks for Change, followed by The Hill We Climb poem by Amanda Gorman, an African-American youth poet, laureate, and activist. You are now listening to Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. Welcome once again to another episode of Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. Before I get started, I just want to thank all the radio stations out there across America that have picked up this show. I hope it continues to engage, entertain, and possibly educate your audience. Okay, so in this episode, I want to quickly focus on the general tone of Amanda Gorman's powerful inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb. I think the poem captures the moment, acknowledges the challenges, and turns toward the future. I want to lift her up in this episode, so let's dig in. You are now listening to Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. essential role of a poet is to not only bear witness to society's conditions, but to be an active participant. At the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, which occurred on January 20th, 2021, Amanda Gorman stepped up to the podium and delivered a powerful poem entitled The Hill We Climb. Her choice of title was appropriate and indicative of the journey through this bold experiment called America. Gorman carefully crafted her poem to represent the necessity of change and carefully crafted her poem to represent the necessity of change and reconciliation. But she also gave us an inside look at how young people of her generation view the torturous landscape of America's socio-political scene, with its rolling hills of political division, its streets of racial animosity, and its overall uncertainty due to a pandemic. However, she found a sense of hope and purpose in her poem that rose to the occasion of the event. At 22 years of age, Gorman found a unique way to talk about the bluesy conditions of people, as well as the challenges that are ahead. If her poem gives people anything, I think it successfully bears witness to the moment. It breaks new ground and offers a little bit of hope. Her poem illustrated the need to tackle the tough issues and the need to keep an eye on the future. After reviewing countless interviews of Miss Amanda Gorman and allowing her poem to spark connections and moments of inspiration, I wrote the following poem, Stay Focused. You are now listening to Dr. Seneca's Topical Poem of the Week. We keep our eyes focused on the prize. 
or the possibility of liberated territory where freedom protects our minds, bodies, and spirits. Where we can breathe, work, and play without the Karens of the world and law enforcement monitoring our movements. Like modern day overseers looking to slap on the chains and shackles. The chains and shackles don't create fear because they can't contain our greatness or measure our altitude or worth. Climbing society like people who can fly, we escape the trauma. The people force their bodies to adapt to jungle-like environments, and so eating and growing is not a problem because the hunger to break the cycles touches the bones. Like the generations of yesterday walk with us, nodding their heads with approval, shrugging their shoulders at the different strategies we use, but never getting in the way. We keep our eyes focused on the prize, or the possibility of liberated territory, where freedoms protect our minds, bodies, and spirits. We hear a different song, a different anthem. Our bodies naturally follow a different beat. Tune in next week for another episode of Dr. Sinica's Topical Poem of the Week. For more information on this show or to check out my latest spoken word albums, check out IamGorilla.com. Now, let's listen in to The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans, and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That 
is the promise to glade the hill we climb if only we dare it because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a forest that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation, because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy, with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the windswept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known of our nation in every corner called our country. Our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. That was Amanda Gorman, African-American youth poet laureate and activist, delivering her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Last week on this program, I aired the remarks delivered at the World Says No to War on Yemen Global Online Rally that was held on January 25, 2021, and attended by thousands of people from around the globe. At that rally, Yemeni-American artist Isa Mighty delivered spoken words about the war on Yemen. Let's listen in. I just have a short story that I want to give. Uh, the other day I was just sitting on the couch. I turned the TV on. I went to see the news. Nothing interesting, just a bunch of different views. A man got shot and Timmy lost his shoes. Nothing really changed, but later I was confused. I was looking on the gram and seeing something about my country. Images of little kids, they starving and they hungry. No medication, diseases, the streets are bloody. Damn. I seen a mother filled with tears. Father grips his lifeless son. He's crying on his knees. Background all rubble, gunfire, the streets are trouble. But what am I to do a million miles away? I'm safe in my nice house. Put those pictures away. And if I say anything, they gon' put me to shame. I guess I'm lame. We always saying sorry, so sick of apologizing. They killing my people, telling me it's my fault. Now they running, screaming through the streets. The refugees are coming, man, they coming out of fear. Where I come from, man, it's beautiful. Before it was a bomb field or an early funeral. Now enter my mind, we going on a ride. Anything you know, forget it for a minute. This ain't Issa, this is spirit. Disconnected from reality, the one that you are used to. We could die at any time. Who are you and who am I? Only memories survive, even those could be altered. We've been praying to the internet. The phone became the altar. We drown in night and water. Perfection has distorted. Lies being reported. We report them because we lie as human beings, the most perfect imperfection. 
affection, feeling for affection. Sexual attention has replaced. It's like weed that has been laced as it's coming back for more. Enough is not enough. A bottle being filled, but a hole is at the bottom. Roots becoming rotten. Cultures are forgotten. I am just a sinner and nothing more than that. Jesus is my first name. Muhammad is my last. Raised in America, they lie about the past. Indoctrination ain't no education. What they teach about the blacks. Slaves, nothing more. Kings, not at all. And what about my people? We are savages that brawl. But you, you are civilized colonizers. Death follows you wherever every land that you touch. Burned to the ground. Invaded my home countries for the oil in the ground. Lack of pigment got you fearing skin that is brown. Cities that were cities are now rubble wasted towns. And yet we are the terrorists. Such arrogance, a bubble that was built by the godless. I am God set, not a prophet or a messenger. A boy that seen it all. A man that can relate. I have elevated. I do not sit and debate. I give it and you take. My life is a mistake. I love it anyway. Someday spending reminiscing. Other days thinking ahead. Bob your head. Not into the instrumental. Have you meditated? Never catch me imitating. Imitators that do whatever it takes. I'm illustrating. Mental stimulation. No manipulating. Go sophistication. So we all achieve greatness. Dream a quiet life on this path to be famous. Yeah. On this path to be famous, I pray that I will lose my life before I lose my soul. Money ain't a motivation, I've been broke before. It taught me to stay humble, the other things I ignore. Sleep it on the dreamer when I die is when I snore, but I never die. Immortalized to the end of time. In these rhymes, I stay living on forever, but what is forever? I'm clever, never surrender. I end a better director, directing into the center of heaven. I pray to God, but I'm a sinner. I'm sitting around my dinner. I picture a new beginning, existing with no resistance. All winners, I'm just a kid. Maybe that's why I've been thinking different, kind of ignorant. The the only difference is that I'm willing to admit it. Anything I say, I mean it whenever I spit it. Spit it from the heart, hoping that you're gonna feel it. Give you all I got, it's up to you what you do with it. Thank you. Now, I just wanted to say one more thing before I go. I know um, I know. there's, first off, just like a few things that Ahmed was saying about unity and about the people of Yemen and how all they want is a future. I, I just like most people in the audience, have more questions than answers on how we could end the violence, how, how we could end uh, the war in Yemen. But one thing I do know is that when, this, when the dust clears and the smoke settles, there's still going to be a country that needs us and still needs uh, a strong government, a strong economy, a strong education, because without those, it's always going to be a third world country. And I don't care what anyone says, Yemen shouldn't be in the state that it's in with one, the geographical location that it's in, the resources that it has, and the amount of wealth that it has. The citizens are very intelligent and hardworking. The problem was we had a lack of leadership. So when the time comes and the smoke clears and the dust settles and there's no more violence, we still got to be there and be ready to help our people and be basically what they need to progress because at the end of the day it goes back to the old saying you could give a man a fish he eats for a day but if you don't teach him how to fish himself he'll never be able to eat for his lifetime so thank you guys for having me that was yemeni american artist isa mighty with his spoken words delivered at the world says no to war on yemen global online rally held on january 25th 2021 you're listening to Arab Voices on Houston's community station, listener-sponsored, commercial-free, KPFT 90.1 FM. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of the show. Defending Rights and Dissent Organization produces a limited series podcast called Still Spying, documenting the history of FBI spying. It does a deep dive into the history of FBI spying on protest movements and activists, hosted by Defending Rights and Dissent Policy Director Chip Gibbons, whom we've had on this program Arab Voices a couple of weeks ago. Chip Gibbons hosted an episode on December 23, 2020, titled Spying on Muslim and Arab Americans. His guest was Abdin Jabara, a longtime civil rights attorney, past president of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, and former board member of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Jabara not only fought against surveillance and discrimination on behalf of others, he himself was spied on by the FBI and the NSA. Let's listen in to that podcast. In the days after the September 11th terror attacks, the FBI which had failed to prevent them, participated in the roundup of 750 Muslim immigrant men 
As the war on terror was launched not just abroad but at home, the FBI escalated its surveillance of Muslim American, Arab American, and South Asian American communities, showing that when it came to countering terrorism, the FBI viewed race, religion, and national origin as grounds for suspicion. This is the Still Spying Podcast presented by Defending Rights and Dissent, and I am host, Chip Gibbons. Later in this episode, I have the immense honor of being joined by Abdeen Jabara. Abdeen was a civil rights attorney for decades as a past president of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and a former board member for the Center for Constitutional Rights. Abdeen was involved in fighting against the types of abuses we talk about on this program. And he didn't just defend others against FBI surveillance. He himself was spied on by the FBI. As part of his lawsuit against the FBI, it was revealed that the NSA had spied on him as well. Abdeen was, in fact, the first U.S. citizen publicly identified to have been subjected to NSA surveillance. This was in the 1970s, by the way, not in the post-9-11 war on terror era. But first, let's take a look at the wider picture of the FBI's attacks on Muslim Americans and Arab American communities. Shortly before setting out to record this, the Supreme Court reached a unanimous decision in Tanzin v. Tanvir, ruling that four Muslim men could sue individual FBI agents for monetary damages under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The agents in question used the no-fly list to try to coerce the men into becoming informants and spying on their communities. The use of informants has been key to the FBI's surveilling of the Muslim community. This includes placing informants in mosques and other community spaces where the FBI had no reason to suspect any criminal activity was taking place. Operation Flex is a particularly egregious case of FBI infiltration of the Muslim community, and it embodies the suspicionless nature of this surveillance. Craig Montiel, an FBI informant, was paid to infiltrate Southern California mosque and gather personal information such as email addresses, cell phone numbers, and political and religious views. He was even encouraged to enter into sexual relations with Muslim women in order to gather intelligence. Who was the target of his surveillance? According to Monty Isle, the FBI had identified no targets and said the targets would come to the informant. In short, it was broad, dragnet surveillance of Muslim Americans. Ironically, the informant's cover was blown when a mosque he was infiltrating reported him to the FBI due to his erratic behavior and extremist statement. These FBI informants often act as agent provocateurs concocting non-existing terror plots and enticing people, oftentimes extremely vulnerable people and sometimes with the offer of financial reward, to engage in them only for the FBI to swoop in, arrest them, and declare they've thwarted terrorism. One of Donald Trump's Muslim ban executive orders actually cites two non-existent plots concocted by FBI agent provocateurs as justification for his Muslim ban. Well, this targeting is part of the post-9-11 war on terror at home. It is also part of a much larger history of abuse. On our first episode, we discussed with former FBI agent Mike German about Operation Vulgar Betrayal, a 1990s sprawling investigation targeting American Muslims. And we know, during the run-up to the first Gulf War, the FBI knocked on the doors of Arab Americans to interview them about their political views. Beginning in the 1980s and continuing well into the 2000s, the FBI initiated deportation proceedings against seven Palestinian immigrants and one Kenyan immigrant, known as the Los Angeles 8, for activity in support of Palestinian rights the FBI conceded was entirely protected by the First Amendment. From 1979 
1989, the FBI conducted a 10-year intelligence investigation into the General Union of Palestinian Students. This investigation was finally terminated in 1989 due to the fact that no evidence existed suggesting links between the group and international terrorism. That's after one decade of spying that during the investigation, the FBI sought to track the formation of new chapters, establish the identities and whereabouts of the student group's leaders. And Richard Nixon, in 1972, initiated a sprawling investigation into both Arab immigrants to the U.S. and Arab Americans called Operation Boulder. Under Operation Boulder, 150,000 people were spied on. Under the guise of combating terrorism, the FBI has for decades spied on Muslim Americans and Arab Americans and sought to undermine domestic political advocacy that departed from the official U.S. line on foreign policy. talk about this more, we're joined by Abdeen Jabara. Abdeen is a longtime civil rights attorney based in New York City. He is a past president of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and served on the board of directors for the Center for Constitutional Rights for 20 years. Abdeen, thank you so much for joining us on the Still Spying podcast today. Wonderful to be with you. So just to start off, uh, something that was in the news recently was that the Supreme Court, in a case brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights, ruled that four Muslim American men who are placed on the no-fly list can seek monetary damages against the individual FBI agents who had used the no-fly list to coerce them into spying on their communities. As someone who has been a civil rights attorney for decades and has challenged surveillance and discrimination, what's your reaction to this news? Well, of course, it's great news, but there's also a, it's kind of bittersweet in the sense that these regulations, no-fly regulations, have been in place for now for in, in three different presidencies. They started when uh, President Bush was in office, and they went through the Obama two Obama administrations and now through the Trump administration. And for people to challenge them without resources like the Center for Constitutional Rights, for instance, is impossible. So yes, it's, it's a great thing and I'm, I'm happy about this, but it also has uh, that downside. The second thing is, is that this is just the beginning of this case because they can claim qualified immunity, the FBI agents, and they uh, and they can claim that uh, they didn't know it was illegal at the time they did it. And if the court finds that they had qualified immunity, that would, of course, protect them. So, you know, uh, they're, they're just halfway there or a quarter of the way there. But it still is uh, important because it was a unanimous decision in the Supreme Court, and it helps to set perhaps a rollback for all the anti-Muslim measures that have been taken since the beginning of the Trump presidency. Yeah, and, you know, the Supreme Court obviously ruled, as it usually does, on a very sort of narrow technical issue. But as as you hinted at, there's much larger issues at stake here, including the no-fly list, but also the sort of the use of infiltrators and informants. The FBI has basically subjected the Muslim American, Arab American, and South Asian American communities to suspicionless surveillance, basically treating them by virtue of their national origin, religion, or ethnicity as, as being a fifth column. What's the impact of that type of surveillance on a community? There are two demarcations uh, about surveillance. Prior to um, the attack on the World Trade Center, it was the Arabs that were the target uh, of the surveillance. Now, following the 9-11, it became a much larger net that was cast uh, targeting all Muslims. And uh, and the, the, the fear uh, that has been created by this is very palpable, particularly here in the tri-state uh, area of New York, uh, New Jersey, and uh, Pennsylvania and Connecticut, actually, the four states, where they had a huge program that the New York Police Department engaged in, in cooperation with the Joint Terrorism Task Force to map all the concentrations of Muslims and uh, infiltrate the mosques and develop 
informers and getting you know people who were charged with crimes to agree to become informants, etc. So it had a, 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 I guess what they call a chilling effect is the legal term on these people's lives. Uh, they you know began to suspect people um, in their mocks and uh, it created a, a bad situation. I can understand that after 9-11, certain measures would have to be taken to protect the United States. But I think there was a gross overreaction. Now, if we recall the Hanshu case, which uh, judge here in New York, who's still a sitting judge, went and modified after 9-11 to allow police to engage in uh, surveillance where there was no uh, criminal predicate. They, they had no uh, suspicion of any crime being conducted, but were allowed to conduct surveillance to unearth anything that uh, might be untoward in terms of the law. And the whole rationale for this has been that this is terrorism. This is um, international terrorism and not domestic criminal activity. So it's had a, a very heavy effect. It cut down a great deal on people attending mosques and going to community events, etc. For people listening at home, I just want to note that we did a, a deep dive into the Hanshu Agreement and Hanshu case on our episode, The FBI versus the Young Lords. So if people want to learn more about it, I, I would suggest listening to that episode. Um, I, I was struck by something you said when you mentioned that pre-9-11, the target of the surveillance was, was Arabs and post-9-11, it was it was Muslim Americans. Uh, a couple of other people who have done this sort of work for a long time, and you know, remember working and organizing against the FBI visits to Arab Americans during the first Gulf War, and then of course all of the post 11 abuses have made that that similar observation to me. I'm wondering what you think caused that shift, and I'm also wondering how does the FBI's behavior post 9/11 with surveilling the Muslim American community fit into their larger history with that community? Well, here's one thing that people have to understand. Number one, how closely tied the United States is to uh, intelligence gathering that would be supportive of Israel. Uh, this began basically at the time of the June 1967 war. At that time, there was a, a U.S. intelligence ship called the SS Liberty that was in the Mediterranean, and it was hit by Israeli missiles and 34 American sailors and, and, and personnel were, were killed in that. And it was pretty much covered up by the Johnson administration. The, the Johnson administration had given Israel a green light for that war because they didn't think that the Soviet Union would get involved. And ever since that time, any resistance to the occupation was regarded as terrorist activity. And that filtered down into the American intelligence community and that anybody who was supportive of the Palestinians in their struggle were potentially targeted for uh, surveillance. And that's where I came in, and I brought my lawsuit in 1972. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's, that's the next thing I want to ask you about. How did you first come to suspect the FBI was spying on you? Well, there's, there were two things. Number one, I had them visit me at, in my home uh, and attempt to interview me. And secondly, as I read uh, in Newsweek magazine, uh, in something called the Periscope section, the wiretaps had been initiated on uh, 22 Palestinians in the United States. And I was certain that some of those were uh, clients of mine or who had called me for one reason or another. And, and therefore, I thought there would have been uh, some overhears and that's when I brought my lawsuit. And uh, fortunately, uh, after I brought it and they responded to my improper complaint, the ACLU became uh, interested in the case and uh, agreed to represent me uh, for the rest of the time in that case. And we discovered a great deal of information in it. I mean, uh, a lot of it was uh, surveillance of speeches that I gave at different events and so forth. But it also included asking the NSA for any communications I had uh, outside the United States. And the NSA did provide them with uh, six communications. I, I have no idea what they were. I'm sure they must have been telegrams or something. I was heavily involved at that time in an organization called the Association of Arab American 
Western University graduates, and I was uh, actually a president of that organization, one of the founders. And uh, it took some time, and we got the discovery that we did, and it was turned out that some domestic Zionist organizations were also feeding information to the FBI. And we knew that this uh, the domestic Zionist organizations had a spying operation on activists on the Palestinian issue, uh, all of which came out in 1993 when the FBI itself released a great deal of information concerning the work of the ADL to uh, a newspaper in San Francisco. And it turned out that, yes, uh, over 10,000 people had been spied on in some fashion, including a lot of organizations like the American Friends Service Committee, anti-apartheid activists, um, etc. So uh, this was the situation we were dealing with. Now, the FBI has a long history of surveillance of political activism and very much predated uh, 1967. They uh, spied on Martin Luther King. But the FBI is, uh, I think, is it's a mistake to say that it's the FBI because this is policy by the government and the FBI is undertaking the surveillance on behalf of the government. And the government makes those decisions about who to target and who not to target. So we fought this case. We won part of it and lost part of it. And uh, I was the fir- my case was the first one to be able to disclose without that they had been subjected to NSA surveillance. There were, uh, it was written in the press at the time that there were about 1,600 Americans that had been targeted for uh, in that NSA. But I was able to uh, get an admission in the court that that had occurred. I'm sort of struck by a, a lot of what you're saying, because this, especially the part about these sort of private right-wing organizations feeding information to the FBI. I spent half a decade as a journalist trying to get the FBI to release its files on the International Solidarity Movement, which is a, a pro-Palestinian organization that goes over and does nonviolent resistance in the occupied territories. When I finally got the files released after a very long time, one of the things that struck me was it in the predication justifying the investigation. One of the sources they cited the most were like outside right-wing groups, like people associated with David Horowitz, who's a very sort of notorious anti-Palestinian, Islamophobic, pro-war, demagogic right-wing figure who, during the Bush era, ran this magazine that did basically like McCarthy-style blacklisting. And that was their big source. And, you know, some of the stuff they had in these publications contradicted stuff that was on the State Department website. So I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of struck by the extent to which the FBI has for decades relied on sort of fringe right wing or in your case, Zionist organizations. I know with the surveillance of the opponents of Reagan's El Salvador policy, it started with publications they'd read in the John Birch Society magazine. And in a recent case, the inciting source was InfoWars, the right-wing conspiracy website. So that's really just something that's always jumped out at me. And I, I would note that while I think many people may know about sort of private surveillance groups like, you know, historically the Pinkertons or more recently Tiger Swan, I think a lot of people would be shocked to learn that the Anti-Defamation League has engaged in this type of surveillance. And I was doing a a research project that uh, I don't think is going to come to fruition about sort of the history of surveillance of Palestine solidarity organized in the U.S. And I I was going through the old newspaper articles in California from the 90s when when the ADL spying first came out. And I I was struck by this comment from their Pacific Southwest director where he said, this is explaining why people are angry at them. You know, I'm just guessing, but we know the anti-intelligence atmosphere is stronger in San Francisco than anywhere else. The leftists have been successful in closing down virtually all the intelligence operations of the police, and they'd like to put us out of the business, too. This is the ADL Civic Southwest director referring to the ADL as an intelligence operation, which is, I I don't think, how most people would would think of them. What was the significance of of the ADL's spying revelations? Well, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, because for years they had worked closely with the FBI on dealing with uh, anti-black racists in the South. All right. They had uh, had a close relationship. But when the civil rights movement started and they started sending lawyers down to the South to help people, they tried to counteract any leftist lawyers that went down there to help. And they created their own organization. I mean, 
I have uh, uh, had a friend who's now deceased. His name was Henry Schwarzschild, who worked for the ADL, and he resigned from the ADL. He, he headed up that program to send lawyers down to the South. He quit the ADL because they had been spying on Martin Luther King, and he told me that personally. So they have this incredible reputation as being this anti-hate organization and this civil rights organization, etc. But a lot of people do not know about the dark history of the ADL, which has been so much oriented toward Israel promotion and protection. And in the California case, they actually got a former San Francisco police intelligence officer to give the files to their private investigator after the San Francisco police were forced to disband the intelligence unit. And they gave over all of this political surveillance files to including, I think, like driver's license information, information that violated California state law to this private organization. Right. Your article from the early 90s in, um, I guess it was Covert Action, is, is quite illuminating. It's online. And if I will make sure we put it up on our social media because, you know, that's where I learned the bulk of this from was from, was from your work on it. And it's just, it's such a bizarre case from start to finish, including the fact that the police officer in, in, in a question in it claimed to have worked with the CIA. And at one point, I believe, fled to the Philippines to avoid extradition to the U.S. I really recommend people read up on this because it, it is it's a strange, strange case. One of the things that I, I was remiss in not asking you earlier when you were talking about your own lawsuit with the FBI, was the FBI surveillance against you part of or related to Operation Boulder? Well, that the, that term never came up. Okay. But it, and and uh, Operation Boulder, I'm very familiar with because, you know, I was heavily involved in, in taking affidavits from people and uh, filing complaints, etc. Could you tell us uh, what Operation Boulder part, was? Yeah. Operation Boulder was a intergovernmental uh, program involving 13 different government agencies, the Secret Service, the FBI, the uh, Treasury Department, the Immigration Service, all, all of these. Under, and it was uh, the, uh, someone in the State Department became the coordinator or head of this Operation Boulder. And it was an effort that was uh, initiated after the uh, massacre in Munich uh, by the Nixon administration to create a database of uh, activists on the Palestine issue in the United States. And they went to all the foreign student officers on college campuses to enlist them to get information. They began deportation proceedings against a number of uh, activists. And it was at this time that I got to the visit at my home, actually, uh, in Detroit. And, and the whole purpose of this was to create this, like I said, this database. And an article appeared in the New York Times on the front page. I'll never forget this. And it said that the, the FBI had consulted with Jewish intelligence sources in the United States, all right, because they wanted to find out what they already had. Uh, and they were exchanging this information. And all of this was done to support the occupation and to support Israel's depredation of Palestinian rights. One of the more shocking cases involving the FBI basically acting to enforce political orthodoxy in this country on the issue of Palestine is the case of the Los Angeles Eight. And like I said, I, I was doing some research on a, a project that's probably not going to happen about the FBI's surveillance of Palestinian solidarity activists. And I I came across that that you were you were involved in this as well. Um, the only other person I think I, I more frequently stumble across who's been involved in various civil rights things I've been looking at is George Crockett. He seems like he was everywhere, and you seem oh like, my god, he was. You seem like you were. <laughs> you seem like you were almost as many places as he was. You were the two people. Whenever I'm reading something, it always somehow either you or, or George Crockett seems to uh, pop up. But um, let me just say let me just say something about my own lawsuit. Sure. You because you, you sure. I wanted to tell you how. It ended up. Oh, yes, all right? of course. All right. After we went to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals uh, re reversed part of the uh, summary judgment uh, handed down by the district court. And we did not get a en banc hearing after that and were not granted a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. 
at that time, I, I was not interested in any monetary damages. This was not my purpose in bringing the lawsuit. So we told the FBI that we were prepared to have this case settled if they would agree and stipulate that I had merely been exercising First Amendment rights that I had not been engaged in any criminal activity and that uh, they would destroy the entire file. And they agreed to every one of those uh, stipulated uh, things, and that is now part of the uh, record of the, the case. It took me more than four years after that stipulation to finalize their assertion of the file destruction. I'm, I'm confident that that has occurred now. So that that's how that ended. And, and here this so-called investigation that they placed on me began in 1967, immediately after the June 67 war, and lasted up through the time I brought this lawsuit in the, in the 70s. As far as the LA-8 case, I had closed my practice and I moved to Washington, D.C. to head up the uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee at the time of the LA-8 case. And of course, that case, the lawyers that handled that case, they, they deserve uh, incredible plaudits uh, because they just did, uh, they worked on this case for 20 years, 20 years. And they got six different court decisions dismissing the case, and the government would come back with something else. Six different ones. And finally, the government finally gave up. So that was a long and arduous uh, task. At first, they started out with the charge that they were in violation of the McCarran-Walter Act, which is that they were communists. All right. And then that McCarran-Walter Act provision of the uh, immigration rules and regulations was thrown out. And then they came back that they were providing material assistance, uh, raising money and selling magazines, supporting a particular faction of the PLO. And that took a long period of time. But ultimately, they succeeded in one, and uh, and they're living here. But people should not have to have that kind of stamina and marshal that kind of resources just to protect basic constitutional rights. This is just, it's just not American, all right? If, if we say that we live by the rule of law, but make it so difficult for people to take advantage of those laws and, and get a decision in a reasonably fast fashion, then that's not providing for the rule of law. Yeah, it, it's such a fascinating case because it gives you sort of a, a snapshot of the history of the U.S. security state, because as you mentioned, it's initially brought under the McCarran-Walter Act, which was passed in 1952, and is sort of this bete noir of civil libertarians in the McCarthy period. And when the case is finally ended with the last defendant or last accused person during the Bush years, I believe it's being brought under the Patriot Act. So you get like the gamut from like the McCarthy McCarthy Cold War repression to the Bush War on Terror repression. And for people at home who aren't familiar with this case, it's a deportation case. And a few weeks after these eight individuals who are arrested, uh, seven Palestinians, one Kenyan, who are you know involved in activities supporting Palestinian rights and are spied on by an FBI agent for years, um, and the FBI agent cannot find anything criminal they've done, so he gets the then INS involved. And a few weeks after this, William Webster, the then FBI director, tells Congress, and I'm, I'm just always floored by this quote, and I'm, I'm going to read it verbatim. If these individuals had been United States citizens, there would have been no basis for their arrest. This is purely a case about First Amendment protected activity in support of Palestinian rights. And this one FBI agent spent two years surveilling them. He could find no crime. He was like zealous in his obsession. And he then brought these deportation proceedings, which, as you mentioned, eventually resulted in a victory, but only after really great hardship for the defendants. That's absolutely correct. And we have to understand that there was not a lot of pushback by a lot of liberals in the United States against this happening. And that is also something that people should take note of. And I think part of the reason is because it involves Israel. I really think that that's a major reason. And um, too many have uh, uh, been willing to allow Israel to, to operate in this country against people's rights. Right now, the, we're facing a situation in California where they forced uh, Zoom and Facebook and uh, one other social media uh, operation to completely cut off any 
communications by a person from uh, Palestine who was appearing in, in San Francisco uh, at one of the universities there. They were completely denied any kind of exposure to the American people, and it was because of pressure from these groups. Defending Rights and Dissent has condemned what Zoom has done, and we, we've signed a number of public statements and, and letters to Zoom. Uh, it's a complete attack on academic freedom, what, they, what they've done. And I would just say, if people want to learn more about the Los Angeles 8 uh, case, there's an excellent book authored by David Cole and James Dempsey called Terrorism in the Constitution. And it's not just a great book, but Defending Rights and Dissent is the original publisher of it. It was later republished by by the New Press. But um, it's a work that we played a part in having published. And it's still one of the most valuable uh, resources on this subject. Unfortunately, the last edition was actually before the case was settled. So uh, there's some additional information that could be in there, but it, it, it's a good it's a good look at, at the case. You know, it, it, it's interesting how, how we keep playing back to the subject of Palestine, because when I was you know working on this report we did called Still Spying on Dissent, um, the Enduring Legacy of FBI First Amendment Abuse, I, I was going back and compiling sort of a timeline of all of the known instances of FBI abuse, or at least the very notable ones. And one of the ones that was really shocking in, in the timeline, my coworker actually worked on it, she was at the Chicago Bill of Rights Defense Committee at the time, was that during the first Gulf War, or in the run-up to the first Gulf War, the FBI went around and visited Arab Americans at their homes, knocked on their doors, and asked them a lot of questions about their political views, mostly in relationship to that war. I know the ADC was very active in opposing this, as was the late Congressman John Connor. And I, I was going through the New York Times article from the time, and the big question that people had was, you know, how did they know where these people were and how to knock on their doors? People were afraid the FBI had a list of, you know, Arab Americans in this country. But something that the ACLU representative, Kate Martin, who was at one point on our board at DRAD and I believe now is at Center for American Progress, tells the New York Times is that a lot of the questions are about Palestine. And she says, the FBI has long considered support of the PLO position in the Middle East to be equivalent of terrorist activities and thinks that gives them the right to treat people who hold these views as terrorists. And and just going through some of the other big abuses, Operation Vulgar Betrayal in the 90s, which we talked about on our opening episode with Mike German, the Holy Land 5 prosecution, a lot of these cases have a, a, a nexus to Palestine or Palestinian solidarity organizing. So I guess my question to you is, to what extent do you think the criminalization of support for the Palestinian cause has facilitated sort of broader surveillance of Muslim American or Arab American communities in this country? Well, once once they use the word terrorism, that takes it to a whole new level. And there's much more acceptance by the broader public for measures that they uh, would not think much of uh, regarding uh, surveillance if uh, they were not having this label of terrorists attached to it. So I think that uh, we've gone through a long, long history in this case, and, and I don't know when it's going to end because uh, it is so tied up with the whole issue about Palestinian rights and Israeli repression of Palestinian rights and uh, America's siding with Israel in basically in this occupation and the colonization uh, of the territories that were seized in 1967. So until that issue is resolved, I suspect we're going to see, continue to see these heavy-handed measures against people, Arabs and non-Arabs, that are supporting Palestinian rights. And we see it every week. We see one case after another in this part of the country or that part of the country, uh, professors that are being denounced, people being put on blacklist. By the way, the ADL has, to the best of my knowledge, ceased its surveillance, but it has been offshored to some other organizations. You mentioned the David Project, and there are others that are uh, still uh, conducting and doing the same thing. And and I think this adds because there's been a division of labor in terms of uh, the surveillance now. But they still are working with the authorities. I just read an incredible Love letter. That's what it was called. It was called. That's what he called it. It was by James Comey um, to a group of the ADL that he he spoke to, and he said, "This is a love letter," and he signed it. He signed it, "Love James Comey," 
And there's absolutely, that's exactly what the relationship they've had with the FBI, even despite the fact that uh, the ADL was uh, violating people's rights uh, for years in this country. You're absolutely correct. We've, we've seen instances of FBI agents questioning students who are active for Palestinian rights, and they bring up stuff from uh, this ridiculous blacklisting website called Canary Mission or, or similar sites. Mm-hmm. So I guess my final question for you is, is what do you think is at the heart? Of, of FBI surveillance of Muslim American and Arab American communities? Well, I, what I think is at the heart of it is, is, is the, the politics. It's Pol- the politics of it. That they, uh, uh, you know, uh, are have been mobilized to support American policy, which has been not been one that had been friendly to Arab American and uh, and uh, Palestinian rights or Muslim rights. That's all it is. It's just a, a purely, purely political situation where a uh, state law enforcement agency has been utilized to support the politics. And uh, until those politics change, that this situation is going to continue. Abdeen, it was an immense honor to have you join us today on this podcast. We really thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, that was Abdeen Jabbar. He is a longtime civil rights attorney who has represented a number of people who have been uh, victims of government abuse, including Arab Americans. He himself was spied on by the FBI and the NSA for his activities. Uh, we're on our home stretch at the Still Spying podcast. We have two episodes left, one covering the role of the FBI in the McCarthy era and one covering the FBI's history of surveillance on our organization. Uh, After that, though, we'll be returning with a new podcast series exploring the plight of national security whistleblowers. That was a podcast titled Spying on Muslim and Arab Americans from the Still Spying podcast produced by Defending Rights and Dissent Organization. More information on that is at www.stillspying.org. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. This is Bill McKibben coming at you on KBOO, Portland, Oregon. Are you a KBOO member?